Ready to pop the question? The jewelers at BlueNile.com have got sparkle down to a science with beautiful lab-grown diamonds worthy of your most brilliant moments. Their lab-grown diamonds are independently graded and guaranteed identical to natural diamonds, and they're ready to ship to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Welcome to Cult Talk with Aaron Martin, a conversation, not an investigation. Cult Talk is a podcast that explores the realities of cult life, how they operate, who joins them, why people stay, and how some members eventually find their way out. Season one of Cult Talk will focus on a little-known cult called the Kobu, which stands for the Church of Bible Understanding, led by Stuart Trail. In episode eight of Cult Talk, I chat with Katherine Armstrong, who reached out to me to share her story of being in Kobu for many, many years, some of which even overlapped with my mom and dad back in the 1970s, the early days of the cult's fragile beginnings. She talks about how Kobu recruited her and some of her friends while they were still in high school, how Stuart manipulatively pitted members against one another in his infamous color coding system that ranked members and how she continually strived to be, quote, the right woman, according to Kobu's impossible standards. Here's part one of my two-part interview with Kobu survivor, Katherine Armstrong. Well, Kathy, thank you for talking with me today. I know that we contacted one another. I think you reached out to me on an ex-Kobu page, and you actually knew my mom and my dad in the Kobu. Yes. Yes, absolutely. I was 15 and I remember them and um, I remember looking up to them because anyone that was like five years older than us, we just t- revered them and thought they were great. It's funny. Plus they were so friendly. <laughs> they're, yeah, they're friendly people. It, it's funny though, because you say you were 15 and I was like, wow, that's young. I always think of my parents as so young in the group and they <laughs> yes. were 20, 21, yep. you know, so, but 15. Yep. So Mm -hmm. were you still living with your parents? Like, how did you come upon this group? So my friends who, my best friends who lived down the street, they got involved. Their older sister did first. Then they got involved. And because we were so close, they kept saying, well, when are you going to come down? And when are you going to come down and see it? And I hesitated and hesitated because it was just, I was very skeptical of it. And I wasn't raised to go to church. And I just wasn't sure what I was thinking about this. And This was my first year at high school. So I gave it a little bit of time and then I went down and brought some friends. And the very first day, wow, it really hits you because the older members, um, you know, like in their 19, uh, they were 19 or early 20s. They were so happy to see you. They were very welcoming and kind and just wonderful, wonderful to talk to. But then they sat you down and talked about getting saved. Mm -hmm. and becoming a Christian and what that meant. And then 
they convince you and convince you and they don't really let you go. I mean, you're like kind of a, (laughs) but all of us were like that. So I'm not trying to say that it was just certain people. We were all trained to really coerce or lead someone to Jesus. That's what it was called. And so after about an hour, I just thought, well, sure, I want to be saved. I want to be forgiven. And I want Jesus to be my savior. Absolutely. And I was searching. I was a young person. I was the first year of high school. I wasn't involved in sports, so I didn't quite have a team. Mm-hmm. And and I didn't go to church, so I didn't have, quote, a Christian family or a sense of community. And my family was, I didn't have a large family in Baltimore. They were all in the Midwest. So yeah, I just was so drawn to them. And the fact that they loved seeing us, we would come down after school in a little Volkswagen and do our little lamb. We would do our nuggies that we were called lamb. So a nuggie was a nugget. You would just get into the Bible and take notes on your file cards. And you. it was just a wonderful experience because I was learning about Jesus and how the Bible, it was so wonderful. It was just you re- we really were filled with our first love. And that's a verse from the Bible. You have a first love for God. Mm-hmm. It was just a wonderful, wonderful experience. And did your friends come along with you or did you just some continue alone? Okay. No, some of them did. And then some of them would drop out. Okay. You know, okay. some of them lasted a while. Some of them didn't. But then we became at our high school, which was Towson High School in Baltimore. We created quite a uproar and we were... They made comics about us, comic strips about us in the newspaper because there was about at the height of it, it was about maybe 13 of us that would talk to other students. And we would sometimes be sent to the office because we would talk about Jesus and really okay, the feisty so- ones. Yeah, the feisty ones like we would be um, reprimanded and we would say things back to the principal like, well, you know, we have to obey God, not you, you know. Wow. <laughs> Stuff like that. Okay. You know, there was an arrogance, I think, in, and oh, yeah. I, I think there is in any cult kind of mentality where it's like, well, if we're getting persecuted for our beliefs, then we're doing something right. Oh, yeah, absolutely. Because that was what the early Christians, we were modeling ourselves after the early Christians. Right. Where you give were, up your, all your possessions, you just uh-huh, focus on saving uh-huh. other souls. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Yeah. Did you meet Stuart right away? Did you just meet the other members? I mean... Did you did you have a plan of going to live in, as they say, to live communally or how did that work for you? You were so young. Everybody. The goal was to move in eventually. And much to my parents dismay, I continued through the 10th, 11th and 12th grade as part of the fellowship. So I wasn't allowed to go to the, quote, big meetings in Allentown Mm -hmm. specifically you know, that's where they were only meeting at that time. I can remember my first time going, I might have been 17. My parents finally relented and I was able to go and we would all go in vans. And of course, they weren't safe vans either, but we would travel up there and then spend the night and all night Bible studies. It was crazy. It was very, very different for a 15 year old. And of course, because I was getting in the fellowship further and further, and more devoted in my relationship to God, which meant it was synonymous to your devotion to the fellowship. See, there was, it was the same exact thing. So if you were a lukewarm Christian, it was because you were not really devoted to coming to the meetings. You could still be close to God in your heart, 
but not if you weren't in the fellowship and coming to the meetings and witnessing with everybody and going out and proselytizing and just, you know, right. things like that. So eventually, when I graduated from high school, about a m- two weeks later, I moved in to Manhattan Training Center. You did? And okay, which is yes. where we lived for a time, too. Ugh, oh, awful. Yeah. So describe that because I, my mom describes it. Uh, not not in a huge detail, but I've heard from so many members just the deplorable conditions. In so those we lots. lived. I lived with a couple of other sisters who mm-hmm. were from the Baltimore area, and we lived in Hell's Kitchen. So we didn't live in the loft. We lived in apartments that had no electricity. What? So we had yeah, no electricity. Had we used candles, and there were probably roaches all around. And it was a one bedroom. It was it was a tenement housing. I mean, it was. It was deplorable. It was sad. But then all of the fellowships in the states were equally in poverty stricken areas. And well, most of them anyway. Most of them were. Absolutely. I mean, did you question that or did you just go with it? What was the reasoning given to you? You know, we were so young and naive and we were so thankful to be part of something larger than ourselves. And we were we had a sense of meaning and purpose, albeit misguided at the Mm -hmm. time because we were brainwashed and didn't realize it and because we so much wanted to be right in God's eyes we really lived that way mm-hmm. because you know according to the bible you deny the pleasures of the flesh and that that might mean electricity so but i didn't last long so i only was there for a while just about maybe a few months because i i left because I wanted to get married. And the man I was having a relationship with, he had left first, but he left because of the oppressive, shameful atmosphere of how the the brothers were treated up at the Manhattan Training Center. So there was a time when all the brothers were judged by colors. It was a color-coded system. So I think only Stuart and Gale were silver and gold, you know, and that's what you would aspire to, the silver and gold. But most of us lowly people that were normal teenagers, teenage members, we were either brown or black or orange. So at that one meeting, I remember I was judged as orange, but the man that I was going to marry was judged as lower brown. And he felt it was, I just remember the look on his face and the shame that all of them had at being judged. You know, and a lot of it depended not really on their relationship with God, but their popularity in the cult. (laughs) You know, absolutely. I mean, this is shocking to me. This is shocking to me that you were judged. And it shouldn't be, I guess, after all the stories I've heard about Kobu, but that you were judged publicly and given a color code ranking. Right. Yeah. See, there were different there were different gimmicks or different processes that were used to keep us to keep the shame based, to keep us held down. You know, there couldn't be joy or freedom, really. No, that's how my mom you know? always has described yeah. it. She said it right. just wasn't joyful. And But right. but the, the initial hook got her in the door because she thought right. it was a joyful, free place. Well, when you were in the individual fellowships and individual homes, right. There really was there, there really was joyful community. I have to say that. It wasn't always doom and gloom. The mm-hmm. meetings were. I remember, you know, just dreading them, but knowing I had to go because it was what we were meant to do and what we had to do, you know, in order mm-hmm. to grow and 
whatever. But yeah, so it was the individual homes, you know, were the, the relationships that we built with one another were, were really true and healthy, in a sense, healthy. You know what I mean? As healthy yeah. as you can be. As healthy you as know? you can be in that environment, right? Right. And, right. Well, building on that, here's what I always wonder, and I've asked my parents about this. When you start to have those feelings of shame or guilt or start to think this color coding system is crazy, do you begin to talk about that with other members or do you keep that to yourself? Because you do you have do relationships, talk. you know, right. I'm sure there was a lot of discourse about that. I, you know, I left shortly thereafter. Right. See? So mm-hmm. I don't know. I'm sure they talked about it ad nauseum, to tell you the truth, because you, you know, they would just continually talk and talk and talk about certain things like that. And because you were obsessed with it, you wanted to rise above your low colors. Wow. And who was the, I mean, I assume Stuart was the judge of this. He was the one who handed out all the proclamations. No, no, no. It was really the, he let the group do it. See, that's where he was clever. Yeah. See, he let, he let the individual, the, the more extroverted ones or the ones that maybe were rising above and were closer to him at that time, you would fall in and out of favor with Stuart, depending on a number of things. <laughs> it could be anything. Yeah. And then, yeah. well, that's, that's master manipulation. So he can take himself out of the equation, but he's really the puppeteer. Right. Moving all of the pieces. That's interesting. Yeah. So then you left, you left the group and got married or you well, stayed one foot it, in? It's very interesting. Yeah. Yes, I did leave and we got married shortly thereafter. Okay. Um, I, when I left though, I left from, let's see, I left from New York and I just couldn't take it. And I called my mom. I took the train to okay. Philadelphia. Then I got off of the train station because I didn't have enough money and I needed to take the bus back to Baltimore. So I was 18 years old. In the middle of the night, I got off of the train in Philadelphia, then walked. I asked this man, "Could you, you know where the Trailways bus station is? And so he said, sure, I'll walk you there. I was so young and naive. I wow. mean, and he w- took me through back roads. Like, But you know what? I was so beside myself of what I was doing. I felt so guilty that I was, quote, leaving. Mm-hmm. And uh, when you leave, you backslide. Of course, that's not really true. You can still have a relationship with God, but in the cult's eyes, when you leave, you're a backslider. Can you explain just briefly what a backslider means to the A group? backslider means someone who is who has left their relationship with God and who is co- totally turned and now is living in the world. Right. And just to expand yeah. on that, it's for listeners who are wondering, I think that's a major part of any cult, and it definitely was with Kobu, where if yeah, if you left the group, you were leaving God, you were leaving Christianity, you were leaving your state of grace, all of it. So leaving the group wasn't just because people will have the question and say, well, why don't you just leave? You know, mm-hmm. so, but it goes mm-hmm. it goes deeper with that, with the manipulation right. you're fed. So right. Thank you right. for mentioning that. Sure. And it was just amazing to me that I was protected walking and we walked quite a ways from the train station to the bus station with my little satchel of stuff, my little worldly possessions that I did have. (laughs) Yeah, you don't have anything when you're leaving either, right? It was amazing. Here, Here I am, this young white woman in the downtown Philadelphia walking through and you know, who knows, maybe he was an angel. Wow. (laughs) What year was this? Getting me there safely because it was like in the middle of the night. Seriously. I mean, that's amazing. Truly. What year Mm -hmm. was this? You were 
Um, it was 1978. Okay, so you you found the kobu when you were in 1975. Then, when you were 15, and yes. left it in 1978. Actually, it was 77. It was oh, 77 okay. because my daughter was born in 78. Yep. Okay. Okay. And then when you got married, uh, your husband was out of the group as well. Did you still re- remain in contact with anyone? How did that go? So I didn't remain in contact with anyone because, in my eyes, I was, you know, a backslider. Right. And I remember someone calling me and saying when I had reached Baltimore saying, you know, what's going on? You you left. And he happened to be a very kind man, a very kind person. And so we just talked. I said, I can't do it anymore. I just can't. And I wanted to get married. And, and so he tried to coerce me to come back in his kind way. But I said, nope. And we got married. I had a child, my our first child. And then I missed everyone. Mm-hmm. So what did I do? I started contacting them because that was my family. We didn't go to college. We weren't allowed to. We, mm-hmm. That was frowned upon because that was of the world. That was education from the worldly point of view, not biblical. I didn't know that. I didn't know that college was actually frowned upon actively. Oh, oh, absolutely. Wow. Okay. As was tr- any institution, any social constructed institution was frowned upon because only the church, only Stuart and us had the real way. Wow. Yeah. So I started contacting them, friends, and wanted to come back because I had missed everyone. And I remember bringing my baby daughter, so happy to see everyone. And I was thinking, wow, I'm really, I'm rededicating my life now. I'm rededicating. But my husband didn't go. So I go up there. It was a meeting at Staten Island. And I think actually Richard Wormbram was, the Reverend Richard Wormbram was speaking then. Oh, wow. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. And what happened was Gail saw me from a distance. She must have known I I'd left. She didn't even really know who I was really well. She, they, she must have heard about me or a little bit or something. Mm-hmm. I don't know. And just so to clarify, came up Gail to is Stewart's Gail wife. Gail is Stewart's right. Mm-hmm. So she came, right. And they'd been married by this time about maybe three or four years. Yeah. I don't know exactly. About that. She, yeah. And so she was, again, someone who was so revered and everything that came out of her mouth and Stuart's mouth was just like, wow, she <laughs> talked to you? What? You know, like, so she would came up to me and I was so happy to see everyone. I mean, I was just, I was actually joyful to be back with the people that I felt closest to in my life. She came up to me and looked at me straight on and said, you know, I don't think that you're facing that your marriage was in the dark. Millions of people have lost weight with personalized plans from Noom, like Evan, who can't stand salads and still lost 50 pounds. Salads generally for most people are the easy button, right? For me, that wasn't an option. I never really was a salad guy. That's just not who I am. But Noom worked for me. Get your personalized plan today at Noom.com. Real Noom user compensated to provide their story. In four weeks, the typical new user can expect to lose one to two pounds per week. Individual results may vary. And I instantly was so deflated. I was so happy to be back. She couldn't even say, welcome back, sister. Welcome back. It was like, well, you're too happy here. You're too happy considering what you did. See, they, they needed to have that that outward remorse and guilt and shame. You needed to manifest that. But no one ever told you how long you had to manifest that. 
forever. And that's so unhealthy. Well, there you go. Yeah. Yeah. It's forever. It's endless. (laughs) You know, Stuart was never all about, and but Gail, by extension, it seems like they were never Mm -hmm. all about um, helping you through positive reinforcement. No. It was all about shame-based control. So that totally took the wind out of my sails. Wow. And then I would listen to Reverend Wormbrand and, or his wife, Sabina Wormbrand, and just thought, wow, what a gift they are. And I just, we devoured all of their books. You know, we, he was just such a wonderful writer and such a wonderful man from Russia. I think he was a, a Russian communist. Jew. He was a, yes. Mm-hmm. Russia. And my mom actually talked about reading, was it The Cross and the Switchblade? Yeah, um, no, that's Tom Wilkerson. Oh, I'm sorry. Tom so, Wilkerson. Okay. Reverend Wormbrandt yeah. was the person he who had, then helped James get out later. I think James LaRue. Yes. Mm-hmm. Yeah. So I just took my licking, you know, just took it and, um, thought, well, okay, you know, that's the truth. I, I, you know, I've got to face it, I guess. Like, you know, you just internalize it and you try to change who you are according to their standard of of how they they want you to be defined. Right. Mm -hmm. And so I would go home and I was so thankful that I lived out of the fellowship. A lot of the wives did. They, their husbands left, but they maintained relationships with other wives. Okay. and so we lived outside and, and I created a wives newsletter. So a lot of the wives that lived out yet still wanted to be part, we would we would write to each other and, you know, say what we're doing this month, how we're growing, what our challenges are, how our children are. And then I'd put it together in a newsletter and send it out to everybody. There might have been about, I don't know, 13 of us that I knew of, you know, that were okay. close. Did yeah. Stuart ever get wind of this? Was this? Oh, I don't just, think so. Okay. Yeah. Okay. Because I was wondering how that would fly, you know, Mm. if he knew that you were doing something positive for God's sake. Yeah, I'm not sure. I'm not sure. I I wasn't very meaningful to him. You know, I wasn't one of those in the inner circle. Well, meaningful, meaning you weren't threatening enough to him, probably. Right. Because he was really concerned Mm -hmm. with people who are mostly threatening to him. Sure. Yeah. So then what, how did your parents react to this? I mean, did they ever, did they just kind of keep quiet about it? Did you ever speak with them openly about your concerns or what the group did for you positively? You know, how did that intertwine Um, with your family life? They were thankful that I left and I never did talk to them about it. I never shared with them. Here's why I left. I think they knew, you know, they, they must've known she's had enough and she wants to get married and have children. And then shortly thereafter, I had my second child, a son. And sometimes that we would bring them, I would bring them to the meetings and they remember being in the nursery. They have nothing really good to say about it, you know, but um, <laughs> they do remember. Yeah. That's funny. Cause I, yeah, I remember mostly positive things, but I was so little. So it's very hard to right. tell. It's just right. images and shadows and mm-hmm. different things, taking baths and, you know, but nothing, at least nothing horrific, you know, comes to mind in the nursery setting that I can remember. Right. But Stuart's kids, were they around at that time? This is always interesting to me because my mom and dad never really speak of his kids. They were sort of separated from the group so much, even though all the other kids were grouped together. They were there off and on. They were. I think there were times when he actually got custody of his children or a couple of them at any given time. I'm not really that sure about it, but I know that they're just, yeah, they're just very, they were kind of a mystery to me, his children. (laughs) And to my family as well, which was really interesting, you know, and you also mentioned a couple of times you wanted to get married. And so that was part of leaving the group. Could you not get married in the group at this point? I know later in the Kobu, especially James LaRue's time there, he speaks of the fact that 
they put a lockdown on all marriages or relationships. Now, when my family was in there very early, in the right. early to late 70s, there were a lot of families forming and staying mm-hmm. in the group. So you could get mm-hmm. married, stay, you could have kids and stay. But that actually caused, we think, a lot of people to leave because your loyalties mm-hmm. would change. And so I yeah. wonder, was that starting to happen when you were there? Or There were no marriages. I remember one None? couple being married. One. One, one couple Whoa. got married when I was young, when I was a teenager. And I'm not even sure how long they stayed in the fellowship. But yeah, no one was allowed to be married. You know, I, I personally think Stuart... I understand the economic reasons that have been talked about in another podcast. Mm-hmm. I mean, that may be it, but I also think he wanted the attention of a lot of the younger women. He wanted to be the sole, you know, the king. He really wanted that I, for himself. I agree. I think that was a huge part of it. And he wanted to ensure that he could browbeat the men without mm-hmm. anyone coming to their defense, like a wife right. or someone right. in a serious relationship with them. He wanted to be the only man. Right. You know, held in esteem in these women's Mm -hmm. eyes. It's just amazing to me how many years of life so many people lost and had to, you know, with no relationship possibilities. Mm -hmm. After that, that is staggering to me. Mm -hmm. So true. What shame I remember. Yeah. I must have been 17 when he married Gail. And he did get married in front of the fellowship, I believe. But I wasn't able to be there because I still, you know, was living at home, going to high school. And one of my friends, someone I was very, very close to there, there was a picture of it. And we had like a little newspaper going around at that time. And there was a picture of Stuart and Gail. Of course, she was beautiful and had her bouquet. And I remember my friend looking at the picture and saying to me, that's who we have to become, the right woman. And so, see, the church, one of the symbols of a church of a church is a right woman. Mm-hmm. So that's, and Stuart would use Gail as an example of that. So he left, of course, the wrong woman, his wife, who he was cheating on. <laughs> with Gail. Right, because right. she wouldn't pick, she wouldn't put up with him. So now he's got, quote, this right woman. And, he, and we all needed to grow as a church to be the right woman. Wow. Not a false harlot, as is mentioned in, in, you know, Proverbs. And when you look back on that now, you can see that it was really just this guy who is cheating mm-hmm. on his wife and finding another subservient woman, mm-hmm. you know, to yes. put up with his crap. Yes. Very. Ge- she was a very gentle soul. Mm-hmm. My mom described, she knew Shirley and she knew Gail. You know, oh. she was there through the transition and she was wow. there when Stuart said he was getting divorced and told all of his lies about Shirley. She also knew that uh, Stuart met Shirley when she was an orphan at about 14 years old. And she, he actually kind of lured her from an orphanage. I mean, the guy's a pedophile in my book. Yep. Oh, and yeah. And he always had her dressed in these really like little kid Shirley Temple dresses and really kind of strange, strange getups. And then, yeah, started stepping out on her with Gail. And I think some people in the cult witnessed that, but never spoke mm-hmm. up freely. Mm-hmm. And then really did Shirley dirty with those kids, you know, getting custody and saying lies about her. And of course, power dynamics were so much different back then too. Yes. It's just so rotten, you know, hearing about what happened to, for me to Shirley and those kids. And I understand, I know it's not confirmed, but you mentioned and others have sort of alluded to this on different Facebook groups that his kids were really uh, not speaking with him or didn't have a relationship with him right up until the end. Right. Stuart just, he just passed away in October, which we can also talk about, but 
Right. That's what I understand that meant several of them, I think there were five, were not close to him at all. And what the one, one of his sons actually commented on the Facebook group that he hadn't spoken to him in three years. I saw so. that. I saw that. Oh, was that the son, and we don't have to name him, that uh, I read a police report that was beaten so badly he was sent to a children's hospital. He was beaten oh so badly goodness. with a well, board by me. members of the COBU under Stewart's instruction, although they deny it and Stewart denied it. And they were that actually charged. Yeah. You know, I remember hearing about that. It doesn't surprise me. Stewart had everyone do, you know, his dirty work. We'll pause here for now, but join us for the continuing story on the next episode of Cult Talk. Also, join the listener conversation over on the Cult Talk with Aaron Martin Facebook page. Follow at Cult Talk on Twitter and Instagram, and don't forget to subscribe to the podcast from any platform and leave us a five-star rating and review in iTunes. Cult Talk is written and hosted by me, Aaron Martin, and produced by Dan McInerney. See the show notes attached to this episode for all links to resources and social media associated with Cult Talk. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact, you can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com. <laughs>